0: Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions. And our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to be speaking with Ryan Hinkins of Eat Famous. Check out his Instagram and get those questions ready for the second hour. And speaking of second hour, Jason, let's get into these questions.
1: You got it, Liberty. Ed Judge in West Granbury, Connecticut, writes in, my wife just retired and uh, turned in her work computer. We are getting her an M2 Mac Mini and need advice on a display looking at a Dell 4K UHD USB-C S2722QC or a BenQ 4K EW2880U. Any advice or alternatives are appreciated.
0: Right back to you, Jason.
1: All right, you got it. Uh, if you look at the, you know, straight raw ratings, what you'll find is that the Dell is rated slightly higher. In my experience, um, assuming you're going to calibrate it, um, I, I like the BenQ in, if given the choice between one and the other. Alex?
2: Yeah, I will admit that I'm I'm going to go the other direction. I'm a big fan of, uh, I don't have a lot of BenQs. I've had a couple and they have worked great. So they're, they're totally fine if you go that direction. I just have a lot of Dells. Now, the only thing I'll say is that there are, there are three requirements that I have for every monitor. There's a what a C13, which is the uh, cable, little 3 prong cable, has to have a C13, has to have a visa mount on the back, has to have an HDMI input. <laughs> After that, I don't, you know, like I'm pretty, like other than my color correct monitors, they all kind of, you know, do what they need to do. Um, Some of the Dells, and I don't know about the BenQ, will have um, a power supply somewhere that's external to the, and it just becomes this thing that you have to deal with. Um, so I would highly recommend making sure that it has those three things, but all given, uh, I have, these are all Dells in front of me um, and I probably have 30 at the office. So I've been pretty happy with, with those as a, um, as a monitor for, for our Macs.
1: Next question. A judge in, or no, I'm sorry, Andre DeLay in Berlin writes it Is is it possible to get rid of the invite link within a Zoom meeting? My customers don't want the participants being able to share the invite link out of the meeting. Go ahead, Alex.
2: I guess you could just give them the code. You know, you don't need an invite link to to let someone into a, a to a Zoom. So, uh, you know, now there's a couple different levels of security also that you can add to those to your Zoom link. So you can have it require a passcode. Uh, you can have it require a, uh, you know, you can be, and then the password can be tied into it. So it's a pass- password and it's tied into the link, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> so you can actually uh, give them that separately. Um, you can have it be a, you um, uh, you can have it be a, a waiting waiting room uh, or they have to be signed in or yeah, you have to have one of those, but you can add them all if you want to. Um, so those are the things you can do. And the thing to remember is also you can lock registration. So have them register for the meeting uh, or you register them for the meeting. You can in, insert that and then only people with those emails can get in. Um, so that that might be another thing. And you can add those to each other. So you can have it have them have to be registered and it depends on how big the meeting is. I mean, it becomes a big The waiting room is great when you have a meeting of 10 or less or 15 or less. The waiting room becomes a problem if you have 100 people coming to a meeting. So you just got to decide how that looks. But I do... So what I do is I give everybody the link, but I put everybody into a waiting room. Um, And so everybody always hits a waiting room when they go to my meetings. And that means that I don't have to send them anything complicated. They can always get in. They don't have to be logged in. They don't have to be... But I get to see them before they come in. Um, So that... You just have to decide how you... you know. And that's the... Lowest lift for the far, you know for people for the participants, it just means I have to pay attention to my waiting room when people are coming in. So I think some of what you would do there um, has to do with how many people are coming. But having people register for the event or registering them for the for the meeting, and then locking it to just them is probably the the way to keep it there. But otherwise, you need a link or a meeting number. Um, you don't have to, yeah. So that, 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 I think those are the limits there.
1: Next question. Steve Bucket in Vancouver, BC, Canada writes in using a Zoom H6 with an XY stereo mic capsule uh, to capture set a jet engine startup on my Bell 206 jet ranger helicopter. Uh, Compressor limiter is set to general on left and right. Pad is set to negative 20 dB. Audio is between 60 and negative 160 dB challenge at 160 dB. It's blown out. Suggestions?
3: Go ahead, Bill. I've been in two situations in my career where I've had sound that's been so loud that it's been very hard to get it down into the recording range. One of them was uh, a guy who had a jet-powered go-kart, little little ramjet on the back of it. It was just very weird circumstance. What I ended up having to do was take an alternate path in and do not one but two of these guys. This is a sure switchable inline attenuator. It has up to 25 dB of signal reduction. And I first of all, I would not try to use the built-in Zoom microphones to do this because I have no idea what their performance is going to be like. I would get a couple of the large diaphragm dynamics like maybe RE50s or uh, something similar. Some of the things that people in bands typically use for kick drums that can handle a really high sound pressure level, run them through one or two of these pads if it's necessary and you should be able to get down into a recording range. Sometimes the signals are just so loud, and they're hitting a diaphragm and putting out so much power that it's really hard to
4: get things down. Try that, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I think the problem you may be running into is that they on those microphones, the maximum SPL according to their sheet here is one hundred thirty-six decibels. So, maximum, you're exceeding the maximum SPL. That means the diaphragms in the mic are bottoming out. And causing distortion, or just going to zero a lot of times on condenser mic, because uh, you know once the capacitance goes to zero, they're touching, uh, you know, the sound goes to completely flat dead. Uh, so you could try plugging a couple of dynamic microphones in there. There, some uh, sure. Um, uh, Uh, SM58s would be nice Uh, and that way it may not overwhelm the preamps Uh, and a lot of times you got to realize sometimes that pad depends on where the pad is if the pads between the uh, microphone and the preamp that's good Uh, if it's after the preamp then it's bad because the preamp thing can then saturate before it gets to the pad Uh, and also that's that zoom uh, h6 um is not a 32-bit recorder, and you'd probably be better with 32-bit recorder like the F-series, F3 or F6, uh, because then you don't have to worry about exceeding the uh, the bit depth of the dynamic range or the sample rate of the, uh, you know, well, the sample rate will be the same, but the bit depth of the dynamic range, you'll have much more dynamic range with 32-bit float to, to handle that kind of input. And Alex... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so the
2: um, I agree that the the what you what you're looking for is probably 32 bit. You know, so you need a 32 bit. You can't and and th- not those mics <laughs> because they're not going to have the dynamic range that you have. Um, we've recorded things um similar to this uh, that have a really high SPL with uh, Sennheiser 421s um, going into uh, uh sound devices with a 32 bit. Um, and uh, we've been pretty successful, and the SPL was a little higher than that. So, um, so I think that the, uh, so I think that you may want to look at that, but you need that range, um, because the problem is if you're just knocking things down by putting them through something else, you're not going to get all the little details that happen before and after that. So you need something that you know, and that's what 32 bit is going to give you is going to give you that wide range of um, of capture. But yeah, having a you're looking for a microphone with a high enough SPL to manage that and a dynamic range that will manage that as well as a recording device that's going to do that. And as Courtney said, there's plenty of zooms that, that do have 32 bit. Um, I, I the, uh, the, what I've mostly used are sound devices, which definitely have that, that range, but those are the, those are the calculations that I do. And we can't hear it. We can't wait to hear uh, what
1: happens. <laughs> you know, it sounds, sounds, sounds really exciting.
2: Great, great thing to record. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Jason. Uh, Yeah. Just one more thing in the, just to put in the ring, Uh, I've had really good luck for extremely high SPL. In fact, I, at one point did a ranch shoot with hundreds of cows and it was deafening. I mean, I don't know if it was 130 decibels, but really we had to wear earplugs and I ended up using a, um, I think it was a, a Heil snare mic. It was just designed for incredibly high SPL and it worked beautifully.
0: And then just pulling in, Mickey made a comment that you can send mics into a line level input for additional padding. Next question.
1: Paul oh, Walhus in Austin, Texas writes, in Canada's Online News Act, C18 proposes that Google and Meta pay media outlets for any news content shared and repurposed on their respective social media platforms. What will be the impact?
5: Courtney.
4: There will be a lot less news in Canada. That will be the impact. Because they'll probably just black out uh, Canada, whatever news organizations, uh, um, you know, whatever they or whatever a carrier doesn't want to pay them, pay the money to the news organizations will just not, not have it featured on their, uh, on their website. So it'll be blacked out, which is crazy, I think, because news is the value of news depreciates by the minute. So, uh, you know, it's not something you want to keep around or it has long life, et cetera. So I, I think, you know, they're shooting themselves in the foot to try and uh, monetize news in that, in that fashion. Alex. Yeah, the hard part is is that the government
2: is probably not and doesn't really have the tools. You know, it's it's kind of like you know asking someone who chops wood to do heart surgery. I mean, they just like this axe is doing a lot of damage. Uh, so the um, so the 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 government just isn't doesn't have the kind of the fine tuned processes to make these laws actually work. Um, and so sure that there's, you know, that the publishers are upset about, they're not making enough money. I mean, let's get, let's get down to they're not making enough money. <laughs> you know, they're being commoditized and they're upset about it and they're pushing forward for this. But um, I think Facebook has already announced, Google's trying to make a deal with the publishers. Um, Facebook is already, I think, turned off their connections to them. And when that happened in Australia, it was pretty devastating. Like it happened for a little while until they worked out a deal with Facebook and. And google so the, the answer will probably be somewhere in between i think that's probably what canada's doing is kind of forcing the issue forward um but the, the you know the what's happening on facebook is that they made a deal with with the publishers in australia and then the canada law started going and what what facebook's doing over time is deep deprioritizing news on their cha- on the entire platform so they're, they're not turning it off. They're just slowly making it less and less important. And publishers have been talking about this for the last year. They're like, something's going on because we're making less. And this is why they're getting more stressed is that, and so these platforms can do things that are a lot, less, lot more complicated than just like links or not links. They can say, well, I'm just not gonna make, prioritize this kind of content because we've decided that it's no longer viable for our platform, but that doesn't have to be a, an overnight switch. And I think that that's what a lot of publishers are feeling right now is that uh, Facebook slowly just winding them out of the entire platform, probably in two or three years, you'll see almost no news on Facebook, you know, so that, and that's going to be, you know, it'll put a lot of publishers under for, and they'll wish that they had never asked for what they're getting. (laughs) So, so that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the end end product.
5: And Bill. Well, having
3: come through the reporter system back when newspapers and radio and stations and everything else had standards for that, you know, we're, we're living in this, uh, Delta between news and speculation most I feel of what we hear on TV these days and in radio is speculation rather than news. There used to be a system for vetting news and making sure that there was some accuracy at least, and that's been under attack. I do think that with the world that we live in now where all these computer signals have the potential to carry metadata that's that's persistent throughout the system, there should be some way to put together a, a, a string of authenticity such that if a respected news organization Associated Press or whomever who has standards about verification of data puts their tag on the original that that tag gets carried through and that they could get some micro payment from that to allow their organization to continue. I think it, if, if we don't have sources that are differentiated between speculation and news, the world gets very ugly very
2: fast. And Alex? I have to say as someone who works on a lot of events that uh that the, news rep, that the news reports on a lot of it. It's just a variable of how much speculation. <laughs> it's not, there is no speculation. Uh, the stuff that I see reported on of things that I that I actually, you know, I was there and I did, the, I was in, in the middle of it uh, is you should just, you should take everything with a grain of salt. That's all I gotta
1: say.
5: Next
1: question. John Idelson in Monterey, California writes in, has anyone tested out podcast.adobe.com slash enhance?
2: go ahead alex i haven't tr- tried it yet you know i have to admit i use the adobe products that that i really need and there are some that, that are just absolutely you know substance and photoshop are the two that I, I pay for um i i will admit that the subscription model that adobe has has me look at every product like eventually i'm going to be paying 10 bucks a month for this <laughs> you know, like, and so and so i i have a tendency to n- not get to not want to build it into my pipeline um but it does look it does look interesting.
0: I use it. <laughs> and um, we've been using it for just like you know quick social content that you like stuff that has to be fine tuned and go through Adobe audition. Still do that, but this is one of those tools that is like quick. I just need to clean it up. Now you do need, need to be careful because sometimes it over processes your your audio, and then do it you sounds, have any
2: dials or is it just it's just like you throw it no and you get you what just, you get?
0: Just yeah. upload and it, it does whatever it wants to do, and then you you know you you pick with it, but it. the use case is just like quick easy to right. do if you've got the the sound in the background um so yeah it's just something quick and easy courtney
4: yeah so i guess it's a post-production process so it can't be done on a live podcast uh, so because you have to upload the audio to them let their ai work its magic in it and download it back to cut it into your podcast so and if you're releasing it later it would be good i guess
2: and almost uh, everybody records. I mean, th- we record our podcast live, but almost nobody does. Like you know, most podcasters. I don't know if they they'd be able to do that. <laughs> you know, like there's there you know because you know when we did po- when we do podcast podcasts, I mean, like Twit does live recordings, and we do live recordings because I want to take Q and A, and I think that there's a you know that I think that I want the audience to be part of that that interview. But most pot the ninety nine point nine 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 percent of podcasters just record it, and there's stops and starts and things that have to be done and things that are going to get cut out and, and so on and so
4: forth.
0: Yeah, so this is really for the person who's looking like, I don't have time, or you may be intimidated some of those other tools they are just like not yet, and you do want to put out a product that will be Pleasant to listen to might not be optimal, but it'd be pleasant to listen to. That's the the user that this is going for. So it will be interesting to see in maybe six months to a year what else Adobe adds to that. But right now it's a quick and easy fix. So go ahead, try it out. It's great.
1: Next question. Talalik Lopez Waterman in Brevard, uh, North Carolina writes in, what's the best cross-platform USB NIC adapter? Jason? I've had really good luck with OWCs, but those are usually part of a dock. Um, this is the redundancy. Almost all my computers are running a, a Dante redundancy. And this is a Belkin F2CU040. It's a USB-C to gigabit Ethernet, and I've had great luck with that.
5: Next question.
1: Uh, Todd Rains in Allen, Texas writes, And besides Zoom ISO, how would you use a DeckLink Duo in a Sonnet box attached to an M1 Mac Mini? By the way, I have a Mac Mini as my show computer along with my ATEM Extreme ISO. Go ahead, Alex. In general, that's
2: a capture and output device. So there's a variety of things you may want to do. Like for instance, you can have, I I believe a Duo can go four in or four out, or I think you can swap the pairs. So you can have it be two in, two out um, as you know. So there's a couple different things that you can do as far as IO goes from SDI in and out of SDI. So for instance, you may have an application that can do a key fill output from the you know from the application. You can output the key fill out of that um, out of that duo into your switcher. So um, it depends on what kind of switcher you have there. But if you have an SDI switcher, you can do key fill out of it. You could also have another pair taking two cameras in, or you could have all four taking two uh, four cameras into that into your switcher. So if you're running something like Memo Live or even eCam, um, you could do you could have those um, inputs. Uh, go into the computer, and then you'd have four SDI inputs for it, so it it can do a lot of uh, I/O. In addition to that, I mean, I don't think you would do it with this, but you know, anytime you have those cards, you can now put things like memory cards in, and so on and so forth. But primarily, what you would use it for with a Mac Mini would be advanced I/O, um, you know, and so and that could be also audio. You could put an audio card in there that that did it. But if you're going to use it for Zoom ISO and then sometimes for other things, then I would probably um, look at at what you might need to put in or out, and I'd probably the it's not a big deal to change the inputs and outputs. It does, if you go back and forth a lot, it gets a little confusing <laughs> or you can get it into states that, um, that, are, that are a little harder to, to work through. But, but it's in general, you can just go into open up its, its controller and just say, I want these, this pair to be this and this pair to be that. I don't think you can do one at a time. I think you have to take them out and take them in and out as pairs, but I, I almost always have them all in or all out. So I, I don't think of it that way.
1: Go ahead, Jason? Yeah, I agree. I almost always have them all in or all out. I've also used this for MIDI. Um, I've used used MIDI, M-I-T-T-I for Mac, to kind of monitor and then repeat out LTC. It's probably not the most professional way to do it, but I've had good luck with it. And so far, knock on wood, it's been really stable. Next question. Andy Korcundorfer in Vieira, Florida, writes in. Just an FYI, was recently able to remove the powered by Zoom watermark from Zoom live streaming by submitting a support ticket. Previously, the watermark could not be removed. Alex, yeah, we—I think we had that on there for quite some time. <laughs>
2: so when we first got started, because you couldn't, there was no way to take it off. Um, and that uh, part of that is, you know, for us because we moved to Zoom ISO, we don't think about it that much because we have Zoom ISO. We're going to a switcher and it doesn't have any of those watermarks and we're doing our own streaming. I would recommend if you get serious about it, If it's great that that live streaming capability exists inside of Zoom and someone can just turn it on and make it go. As soon as you start getting serious, you're gonna find that the image quality and what you can do with it gets starts to go up a fair bit um, when you do something like Zoom ISO and then send it out to a system and, and you can now start adding graphics and the actual visual quality of the Zoom participants will look better if they have good cameras will look better from that pipeline than the stream to, to YouTube.
0: And for our producers, this is a great time for you to add any of your questions to the queue and making sure that you vote them up as well, because this show is driven by your question and participation. And back to the next question.
1: Tony Foucault writes in from Indianola, Iowa. What is the best way to configure your studio lighting to help your subjects stand out from the background?
5: It's the fun
3: one, Bill. So the tradition in photography for many years, and it's come into video, is what's called three-point lighting. And you're using lighting to do a three-dimensional representation of something on a flat screen. It The three parts of that are a key light, which to typically which typically provides most of the illumination for your subject, then a fill light, because the key light is usually not straight on. That ends up looking like driver's license photos, and it's not very satisfying. So a key light on one side coming in that is the brighter of the two lights, a fill light to bring up the shadow detail on the far side, and then another key to this is the rim light or backlight that is usually defining the shape of the person who's in the frame. So if you take those premises, the three-point lighting premise, and bring it into your video work, it helps the subject be distinct from any background behind them. And if you start there and kind of study that and learn those three points, you can diverge from it and say, you know, OK, I've got somebody in a black shirt like I am today, but I'm against a very light background. I don't really need the separation of the backlight. So you can sometimes leave that out. Or maybe you have in a circumstance like I am where my dark hair could be blending into the background. So I actually have an overhead light that is that you can see the shadow of now that is just helping people understand where my head stops up there so that the dark doesn't Blend into the dark, and I become less distinct for the viewer.
4: Courtney, yeah, Bill covered it really well about the lighting. Just try and keep your background. If you do have control over the light in the room, keep your background, you know, half to to a stop down below uh, what your face, your foreground will be, and then use the backlight, as Bill was speaking of, a hair light from behind to get separation on the dark areas. Uh, so that the the parts of your face that would be down a stop or so can get a little separation between you and the background. So he covered it perfectly. And Alex, yeah, and and
2: oftentimes you know one of the things is to, is really look at the details behind them as well. So what you know how much detail and and that's where a short depth of the field makes a big difference as far as separating them out beyond lighting um, that that helps um, a fair bit to to make that work. The, and as everybody's kind of alluded to here, make sure that you're. Your subject, if, if if you can, is far enough away from that background that you can light it separately. <laughs> because a lot of times we get people that are right up against it and it's very hard to control the light. So really making sure that you've got... Uh, when I'm doing an interview, I'm typically looking for six to eight feet minimum to, to the background unless they're in their office. And that's what you're trying to look at and it's just never gonna be as good. So six to eight feet is what I consider minimum. When I start doing math, like I'll walk into a, a room and I'll just start rearranging. The other thing to know... When you first start doing this, you, uh, uh, you use the room the way it was, you know, the way it was, it arrived, you know, like you show up in the room and you kind of put some behind a desk or you use the table that's there. You can always tell someone that's done this a lot. It's because we just come in, take a picture of the room, <laughs> you take a picture like, this is what it used to look like. And then we just move everything to where we want it to be. <laughs> and so we just move everything, you just move everything to the side. You move everything in, you put everything out there, you know, you kind of, you, um, and then you, you, you make it look the way you want it to look. And then when you're done, you, cut, you you pull the picture out and you put everything back to where it was. But that's the, that's the way you, you'll wanna get, you wanna be pretty aggressive about that. You know, you can't break anything. So you have to be very careful and look at those things. And that's what a, an early walkthrough helps with. But a lot of times I've walked into stuff where it's the only day I'm there, you know, and I just show up in Detroit and and, and walk in and do an interview and you just
5: have to kind of figure it out. And
1: Jason? great topics all the way around. The only things that I would add to that would be if you have a short depth of field, like right now my lens is all the way open, but you wouldn't know that because you know there's a gray wall, a solid, I don't know, eight feet or so behind me. Uh, the interest, at, there's no point to a bokeh if your background is not interesting. And um, another use or another term at least for the, um, the overhead light is the kicker. And it's called the kicker because it kicks the foreground from the background. It, it, it adds depth and, um, and kind of shape to it. And this is very hard to learn on yourself. Have somebody, um, friend, girlfriend, pet, if they will hold still, sit in the chair and start moving lights and start paying attention to how that changes your subject and how they they look in the frame. That's the easiest and fastest way to learn this stuff.
5: Next question.
1: Paul Mm -hmm. Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, spatial computing is poised to be the next major paradigm for how people use computers according to soft space. Discuss.
5: Courtney. Well, I looked at
4: this uh, website, and it's you know it has all the magic words there that they put it together. It's a paradigm shift. It's going to be the greatest thing since 3D. You know, uh, I'm not I'm very uh, not very bullish on uh, uh, spatial computing. I think uh, anything that requires you to wear something that weighs a pound on your face is going to fail uh, uh, very, fairly quickly. We found this out with 3D when everything went to 3D and you everyone found out, well, you got to wear these glasses and those glasses didn't weigh a pound. And people just refused to wear them and to, to use it for, you know, for a game or for a, a brief, uh, you know, to do spatial computing for a game or for some, you know, interactive, oh, gee, isn't this cute? That's great. Uh, for a, a short time experience, but using it every day, I think most people will will not uh, adopt that as a means of doing it. I mean, Hololens has been out for six years, and it's only used in very vertical market applications right now, uh, and it's the same price as the uh, as the new Apple Vision Pro. So, I don't give it a big a lot of chance of succeeding. Alex. Yeah, I
2: think we have to define whether it's a consumer device or a, when we talk about spatial computing. At least in the beginning, is it a consumer device or is it an industrial device? Hololens has actually been um, fairly, you know, successful in the AEC market and a couple other markets as far as visualizing, you know, what's happening on a construction site and so on and so forth. I was kind of stunned by the the you know, I put on a Hololens and it's showing you lidar of every day that's coming you know of where the so you're getting to see things go and you can walk around and look at things inside of an open space and you can see you know the you can switch back and forth between the plan and the lidar and be able to figure out what you're you know what's actually happening there super impressive and all it was is a 30 by 30 foot room (laughs) like it was there that that's in the office that they can now go to any they can go to any uh, you know site that's being covered that way, and they have little dogs that will, with little lidar systems that run through at night, and the um, so the, the the main thing is, is that but that visualization, this three D visualization has been used for a long time. Uh, the first time I saw spatial computing was at Ncar, which is a National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, and that was probably 1995 or 1996, and they had a full on put. It was a lot heavier than the Apple one. <laughs> it was this huge huge uh, you know headset on and you could and and there was a big open room that way and you could see weather and so it showed you weather patterns and you could walk around and i will say that it, you could you understood it better by looking at it and being able to walk through it and experience it as opposed to just seeing it on a screen so there's definitely data and it's not just that data cuz later i you know we've visualized lots of data i i have a um i know somebody who visualizes a lot of um A lot of data anyway and that data makes way more sense in 3d than it does in in 2d and so i think that you're gonna i think that we're gonna see in in many many verticals especially after the apple headset comes out because it's much more desktop driven it's much more of a uh, a computing environment as opposed to so what we've seen so far is you put this headset on and now we're going to give you an experience when you start adding these windows and volumes inside of a space which is what the the apple headset is doing you're going to kind of, it's going to be a little bit more casual use. I'm going to pick something up and rotate it around. I'm going to do this over here. I'm going to do, you know, and and those things are going to happen a little bit more smoothly. And I think over time, you're going to see spatial computing take off um, in in a lot of first, it'll be in the science industrial areas because that's where it makes the most sense. And that's where people are going to buy the headsets. But I think you'll start to see it trickle down. And I think that, you know, 10 years from now, it'll be used in a lot of schools.
0: Yeah, I was going to say the the same thing, like, let's put this question on the calendar and come back and ask this question. in um, In you know, a year from now, well, a year (laughs) from now, specifically only because with what Apple's doing, it's opening up what's possible. And and it brought it to a consumer level. To your point, Alex, like from an industry wise, like B2B organizations, yes, this makes sense for them. But for us as everyday consumers, we need to see more innovation takes time.
2: And and the thing is, a lot of times science fiction tells us something about what something might look like in the future. And if you look at, you know, it, it, it does make a difference. If you look at the way Iron you know, Iron Man is a good example of sci-fi of the original Iron Man, where he's rotating things around, he's moving that data around, he's looking at things, he's pulling them open. That's all possible, you know, ten years from now. <laughs> you know, like, and it might some of it might be possible now. Right. Uh, at, 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 at when when price has no limit. Um. So so the, the those are the kind of things and and interacting with the data in 3D and spatial in a spatial term, definitely makes a difference. Like it, it is definitely a, a different experience than just t- dealing with it in 2D. So I think you're I think you will see an uptick. Um, the, 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 the headsets are going to get a lot lighter. They're going to get a lot you know, less expensive, you know, over time. But but I think what we're seeing right now is the, you know, the very early, you know, crazy versions of them as they as they get off the ground.
5: Right.
0: Minority report. I'll just leave it there. (laughs) Minority report and seeing how the that (laughs) That was 21
4: years ago.
5: Yeah.
0: So it's it's now getting closer and closer to those possibilities.
4: But he didn't wear headsets in Minority Report. They were on screens in front of him.
1: Which is much harder than that manipulation. You know, the hand tracking is, you know, being able to get a screen that floats without a headset. The the headsets will evolve. Next question roscoe jones in madison indiana writes in would an in-person meeting on monday at the office help you end your weekend thinking and boost your team's productivity that week
3: bill probably but i've been away from offices for what now 25 years that was the last time i had to go in someplace and work for somebody in their space and um So my weekend thing, I I remember it, and I remember that there were pluses to it and there were minuses to it. The gathering together around the coffee machine on Monday morning and saying, how was your weekend and what happened? I will say that this office hours experience has largely replaced a good little bit of that because the intake part here is very much like the coffee room used to be in the physical offices that I worked in. I see my friends. We have a chance to talk, catch up a little bit. If there's been a milestone, we share that. And it really does help in the person-to-person bonding to go through some form of this. So I agree with your question, uh, Roscoe, that that it's important to have that bonding experience with teammates it it does add to team cohesion but i argue that it may not be the physical coffee machine in a space where you have to get up and negotiate traffic to get there that is the thing that really drives that
5: alex
2: yeah, I think it depends on where you live. Because if it, if there's traffic involved, no one, you know, no one and en- gets there on Monday morning, and oftentimes in a great space. <laughs> you know, so it's because they just went through whatever they went through, either driving or mass transit, and now they ha- and and to do it just for an in-person meeting, if, especially if the team is distributed normally, that will not be seen, I think, as a great experience, like a great idea. They'll just be frustrated um, that they had to come in and get ready to go, and so I think that. Um, you know, obviously I have a lot of touch bases. I'm probably in about six to eight hours of meetings a day. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in, and I think that for me, if I went back to physical, I couldn't do that. Like if I, I couldn't, you know, because I'm, I finish up a meeting and I just drop out of one meeting, drop into the next meeting. And I didn't go to a conference. I didn't, I didn't have to find conference room FA. And I didn't have to go over to the, you know, the other building. I didn't have to do any of those other things. I just, just keep cycling through those meetings. And the biggest thing that I've learned that I had to do to be effective is to, I I push my meetings to either side. So I push my meetings into the morning and into the late afternoon. And so there's this huge chunk of time in the middle of the day that if, if I, you know, that I try to protect, I don't always protect, I can't protect it every day. But I try to protect about three to four hours a day of not meeting, you know, and so, um, and so that I can work on things. Um, and so that's that's where that's made more of a difference to my effectiveness than almost anything else is just to not allow certain because the problem is if you have windows in between meetings, you you're not really able to think. Like I can't think that way. Like I can't have 20 minutes between a meeting or 30 minutes between a meeting and really get a lot of effectiveness done. So, so I need to have like an hour or two hours or three hours that are all on their own. Um, to make those things work. So I think that's good. As far as team building goes, I have found that Friday afternoon with snacks and soda and beer and things like that in the afternoon has been far more effective. Of, you know again now people can come in if they want to or not. Um, but I think that's more of a draw to come into the office and you know work Friday afternoon or work Friday and then have um, a uh, a little bit of a Tgif, you know at the end of the day. Um, has has been really effective in a lot of companies,
5: and I think it I think it definitely makes a difference. Next question:
1: Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas writes in: How to use hotkeys with the Insta three hundred and sixty Flow or Insta three hundred and sixty Link? Alex,
2: I think the only hotkeys I use uh, are the the hotkeys on the link are the ones that I can uh, just you can basically I don't have it I don't have a link plugged in right now, but basically you can cut between different views of that link. So I don't know of any other hotkeys. so if there's more then let me know. but I the only hotkeys that I use is I'll have two or three cameras plugged into one computer and I can I have I still have to select by hand the the camera, but it might have four or five different framings, and I can hotkey between those framings and I use those often. so that's that's the thing that I've been most successful with.
1: Next question. Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York, writes in, I wasn't aware of these newer mics similar to the Rode Wireless Go 2s, only 179 with charging base on Amazon. Has anyone tried them? Go
5: ahead, Courtney.
4: I haven't tried them yet because I have the DJI wireless mics, which are quite similar. Uh, they have this uh, there we go, charging base with the two, the receiver and the two transmitters. This is what the uh, one we're talking about, this newer $179 one. It says it uh, has a built-in noise canceling, which sounds interesting. It's 2.4 gigahertz, and it has uh, a DSP that is at 40, uh, excuse me, 441, I think, and uh, 16 bits. So it's only 16 bits, but it's fine. That dynamic range is enough for, for uh, I mean, uh, for dialogue audio. So it should be fine for that. How it sounds, how the microphones sound, is is the real. Uh, a test of a system like this. And I don't think it does in microphone recording. I haven't seen any mention of that yet. Uh, And the nice thing about the DJI is you can hit a button on the receiver and start recording locally in each of the transmitters. So even if your signal drops out, you still have a uh, digital recording inside the transmitter, which you can download later. So I'm not sure the newer has that feature though for 179
5: bucks. Interesting to find out. Yes,
4: yeah,
2: I've 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 used a fair number of u- newer um um stuff. I find that the more electronics they add, the less effective they are. So so the stuff that is the stuff that is is less complicated, newer. I think does well. I think as they start adding more complex, you know, like some of their lights are great but if they start having a lot of a lot of features in the light then they start doing things that I don't expect them to um, I just don't think that electronics has been their strong suit so I probably would lean uh, away from it but I own a lot of their stuff <laughs> but I just don't I just don't find that their uh, electronic development has been super successful so far um, and maybe they're maybe they're improving
1: Jason Mm, couldn't agree more, Alex. The more complicated newer gets, anything past an LED panel, and they start to slide down very quickly. I will add only this, the standard office hours disclaimer, which anytime you're doing anything wireless in the 2.4 gigahertz range, don't use it at a trade show. Like, Don't use it anywhere there's any signal congestion. Do not rely on that in-unit recording. Um, Yeah, DJI is a nice workaround. Uh, Newer, warning, I'd spring for the better one. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, what front-end web frameworks are most popular and marketable these days? I've heard a lot about React, and it seems very well done, but I'm curious about the others. Alex?
2: You have to be pretty good at web development at this point to get into the market. Like, it's a very saturated market globally. So there are, you know, like the the kind of things that, um, you, you know, it's a very hard market to get into at this point. I would be very careful of you know, uh, full stack or or doing doing something specific to iOS or something that's more, you know, like that's probably a little bit easier. Um, the problem is, is that front end, uh, you know, web frameworks rec- generally are going to be big teams. And so, and those big teams, you know, they're looking for people who have experience with big teams. And if they're not, there isn't so many people around the world in all different countries that are able to do what you need to do as an individual developer. So I, I think that I would, I would uh, probably not, this is you're, you're talking years before you get a you know like years before you get a job <laughs> like you know if if you go down the the front end you know a web frameworks it's it's not going to be something that you can do quickly
1: next question Unsoh Dorje writes in from Damsala, India. During coverage of our soccer tournament, cam crews were relying on ND filter for lighting as we get clouds and shadows of the ground. A filmmaker friend suggested setting saturation. Is it practical to set saturation and change it for different situations? Go ahead, Bill.
3: I would not recommend that. The point of a neutral density filter, the neutral in it, indicates that it should be affecting all the frequencies of light, therefore all the colors exactly equally. You do not want a filter that changes your color balance in any way or the, the amount. Now, if you're lowering the amount of light that you're letting to the sensor, uh, it can have an effect on the perception of colors in that. So if you add a lot of ND, I can see some circumstances where you may want to adjust saturation a little bit on the back end. I would never do it on the front end. Any kind of a saturation change at the camera, you're changing what you're actually recording, and you want that to be as neutral and as pristine as possible so that you can affect these things in post, not by putting a piece of glass in front of the camera unless it's really necessary. That's my two cents.
5: Alex?
2: Yeah, the the uh, usually you would only want to adjust during the game the the you're going to shade the camera so the aperture is the only thing you're going to affect during a game. You're going to figure out all your colors, figure out your saturations and the, and there's usually, you know, we usually have a shading unit where we're just kind of moving things up and down and that's all you're going to want to do uh, in general. The other thing you want to look at in overall is you probably have a wide camera that that is um that may be uh, you know, wide camera that's sh- showing the whole field that might be picking up the sky. Most of the time when we're shooting, you know, outdoor things, we try to pick a camera that's going to have, that we really have to deal with this, what you're dealing with. The rest of the cameras are up and kind of pointed in. I, I've only done one soccer game. That's <laughs> why so I don't know about the soccer games there. But in other games that we played on a pitch uh, or or some kind of field, we've had a wide shot. And one of the things that we did do that we have done in these, in these environments is, and this will be a. You can get a great uh, a gradiated filter. You know and what it has is a gradation. It's an ND filter that starts with uh, three stops or six stops, and fades out over time. You know, over not over time, but over distance. So what happens is you you put it onto your lens, and it's actually it will it will get the sky because it's it's an ND filter for the sky. But by the time it gets to the field, the ND filter is not there. Um, and so and those are. We've typically used them as you um, know in a, in a uh, we'll put a uh, something in front of the camera to do that. But you can put it, there's ones that'll go onto your lenses as well. You wouldn't do that with all your cameras. You do it with one, and you always leave it that way. You can't shoot the field with that one. You can't move it around. That's your lock off wide. And then you would take the other cameras and and you might be able to go back and forth a little bit. But the other cameras, you just don't want them to see the sky. <laughs> like get them up high enough that they don't they're not, not going to do that. You don't want to there's the, the sky is a lot brighter than the field. And it's going to be... You're going to deal with that all... The whole game, which I, I'm sure you know because that's why you're asking the question. <laughs> so so I would... Um, but I think that trying to get most of the cameras off and having a wide shot that gives you, that would get you a, a fair bit down the road.
1: Jason? Yeah, I've, I've used... Um... A gradient ND filter with pretty good luck. The trick, as Alex said, is that you need a horizon that doesn't move and you need it to not be on your chase cam. Also, if your friend is suggesting one of these variable ND filters where you can twist it, warning. Those are a very bad idea. Uh, It it takes a lot of work to get ND filters to work really well. um, And when used best, they're going to give you good mid-tone contrast and the, the rest of it kind of Um, yeah, doesn't or shouldn't be really toned at all. Um, Other than that, I I would be very careful. Next question. Andre Dole in Berlin writes in, is it possible to sort the participants list of a meeting by second name? At the moment, I always see participants sorted by first name, which I would like to change.
5: Alex?
2: In the participant list, I don't think that there's a way to do that. If you were using something like, and I think this will work, I think you can grab the participant list With zoom shortcut the new um zoom cuts and so if you can and i haven't tried to do this but i believe you can you could then go grab them and then give them to you in a list (laughs) you could hit a button or do a shortcut and it would just give you the list and and it it wouldn't be i don't think inside of native zoom you'll be able to do that Um, but i think you could do it with zoom cuts i know
0: you could do it with zoom osc and jason
1: yeah off the top of my head with a tiny little bit of tweaking i believe it'll take the participants list and it will just output to um, to CSV. From CSV, of course, comma separating values, which is the simplest possible spreadsheet. Away you go. But yeah, I I would need to check it. I love zoom cuts and I haven't tried that yet. Next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway writes in, Courtney, what melee PC would you buy if you were getting another one? Have they fixed the driver issue you mentioned on the new one? Courtney?
4: I think they have fixed the quieter three that has the fifty one hundred five processor in it. That uh, the the, the uh, sound driver, the HDMI sound driver, was the problem because uh, it got stuttery. That was the issue. And I do have one that I'm using, and I don't see that stuttery issue. So I believe maybe it has been fixed. Um, I'm waiting for the new ones to come up. There's a new the newer series of Alder Lake uh, processors that are have come out, the N100, I think. Uh, And um, they're similar to the 5105, uh, but they're a little bit faster. And so if they can fit them into the fanless PC, I'm waiting for those to come out. I don't think they have them out yet.
0: And for our producers, this is a great opportunity as we get ready for our second hour, any of those questions, those burning questions that you have for our panelists, go ahead and enter them in now. And also remember your votes matter. So by adding your vote for a question that you really wanna see or one that you're like, maybe we can use that later, go ahead and put your votes in. Next question.
1: Tony Fouqua in Indianola, Iowa, writes in, would love to hear everyone's thoughts on the WeHead virtual presence robot. And he includes the link.
0: Okay, Bill.
3: I followed the link and I immediately started laughing and grinning and going, what is this? It is so much fun to just visit that website and see what they're trying to do. I I, I think they want you to turn yourself into a uh, transformer, and put a fake head piece on and interact entirely as your own robot. It looks like it, it, it's so silly that it just makes me happy. I don't know whether this is a serious product. If it is, it's going to be a very controversial and interesting one. Uh, it's $2,000 for this piece of headgear, it looks like. And I just, I kept smiling the whole time I was on the website going, this is just insane.
5: And Alex... I think it's serious.
2: They're charging yeah. $2,000 for it. I think they're really serious about this. Uh, anyways, I'm not very serious about it. I, you know, the, uh, I think that it would be very weird. Um, you know, I, I think that, I, I think we're gonna see a lot of people grapple with how do we get conference rooms to work because more and more workers are going to, and I think you are going to end up, I think the trajectory is you're going to end up with a lot more workers that are in pods, you know, in something that they can go in and be in part of a virtual meeting as more and more workers as the 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 workforce becomes more hybrid and it will become more hybrid while companies are trying to pull workers back in the reality is is that the highest the most skilled workers are the most mobile and they're just going to they're just going to be like as soon as i can work somewhere i mean a lot of them are going to go i don't want to do travel anymore i don't want to commute and they're high, and so you're you're at risk of losing your your most skilled folks that are under the most demand and that's the pro- real problem that companies are going to have. So they're going to have to figure out how to build these hybrid workforces and little robots or, you know, 360 cameras with bad mics are not going to be the answer. You know, like it's not, it's just going to be weird. And um, and so they'd rather probably just put screens up there. But eventually what's going to happen is I think is you'll have conference rooms when people are all having the meeting. But otherwise, I mean, and this is, I've worked in some pretty some pretty big companies that that have, you know, that have video conferencing tools that, They made themselves, and um, inside of that, you know, they do use the conference rooms and they try to use them with hybrid systems. But a lot of times, they come in from very small pods, and people come in, and and it just makes it easier for the whole for the whole meeting to work. So I think you're going to see you're going to see more of that, where workers have more tools to do it individually for meetings, um, because it also means that, you know, I think that again, if you think about big companies and big large uh, conferences. Conference rooms. I I think you have to understand the 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 chaos around those conference rooms that occurs. You know, we have to go over to another building because that's the only conference room that's available, and and then there's people stacked up at the end of our meeting because they want to get in for the next meeting, and that's what it's like in a large corporate environment. So maybe in smaller ones, but I don't I don't see this going anywhere. I think that I'm, I'm surprised they raised any money for
4: this. And Courtney, it is quite a novelty, and we'll take a brief static look at it. It it turns your head into multiple cameras on multiple flat screens onto a robotically operated neck. So you stick this little head on the table, and so your face is attached to it. It does give you one additional form of communications in that they can see you shaking your head in disgust uh, or nodding off to sleep. Uh, You know, that will be conveyed with this device, uh, whereas other uh, life things may not be able to uh, convey it quite as... (laughs)
1: as fervently as this next question or friedrich in Isterberg, germany writes in due to a nerve illness a relative has lost his voice is it possible to have his voice reconstructed from audio in order to use it for a future voice assistant pc software
5: go ahead
2: alex yeah, there are a f- few tools. I, I realized I just um, I wasn't able to come up with the the name of the company that does these. There's like two or three different companies where you can upload um, those things. Now, Apple has started to build one where you can actually just talk straight into it and it will do it. But I think that this might be too late. And I don't know whether you can upload uh, existing audio to Apple because it wants you to read certain words. So the, the, so the Apple um, voice... Uh, reconstruction is is about 15 minutes of reading specific sentences and which will work you through different how you use consonants and vowels and how you stack things together and that's what it's looking for there so um uh, the so that's you know that's part of it but there are programs out there that will analyze lots and lots of audio and then rebuild rebuild someone's voice it's not perfect but it's not bad
3: and bill yeah, I think Alex covered it all. I, I was interested in the Apple thing, but thats it's really under their disability umbrella, and they're looking for people who are facing something. I mean, God forbid, throat cancer or something like that, where you know your voice is going to go away, and they want to be able to memorialize what you sounded like through the course of your life. It's fun and interesting uh, and hopefully very helpful for that subset of people who need that initiative. Yeah,
0: very real, very real use case. Jason.
1: Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that this happened. Um, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Do you have good recordings of this person before they lost their voice? If so, there's a great chance that if, you know, the perfect thing doesn't exist yet, it will vary shortly. And I'm sure that Preto has a short list. John? The one that we use is called Eleven
3: Labs. And we took a video from Courtney off of his YouTube channel. And then just by running... I don't know, the video was him showing off one of his products. It was like eight minutes long or something, and it reproduced Courtney pretty well. So that's the one
1: of choice that we've been using. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, I've noticed that French and Spanish announcements in airports and other public spaces often are in a female voice. Why is that? Courtney. I think there's been a
4: lot of psychological testing on this Uh and it's been, ter- been determined year ago, uh, years ago that the female voice cuts through, and people pay more attention to it because maybe because their mothers shouted them at, as a child, and so they pay attention uh, more to a female voice. This is why uh, a lot of dispatchers at police stations uh, are usually females because their voice will cut through the clutter and of the other voices that are uh, on the you know on the frequency at the same time. This is. With more inclusion and more women police officers out there, this is, you know, there's there's a lot more to cut through and it's not going to stand out as much. But uh, that's why I think it's more pleasing to the ear uh, as well as it cuts through noise a little bit better because the higher frequency register that uh, travels further for announcements in
5: public places. Jason?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's only one answer for this, but um, yeah, I'm going to rely with just stick with physics. A uh, female voice is easier to amplify, carries farther because it's a higher frequency. Next question. Paul Wall, in Austin, Texas, writes in, what is the agenda for today's all-hands SIGGRAPH planning meeting at 1 p.m. Uh, Pacific, 3 p.m. Central?
5: Uh, the SIGGRAPH planning I, I, meeting. I, I,
2: sorry, I didn't get my hand up. I was, I was trying to figure <laughs> out the time because I had 11 a.m. So we'll see if it's... It, 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 will be what, if, if there was a meeting sent out, we'll make it happen. But it's, I had an 11 a.m. for that meeting. Um, so anyway, so we'll, um, I think that Brian and I, you know, with in the time zones, <laughs> things got moved around, I think. So anyway, so if it's 1 p.m., I'll be there for that. Um, basically, we're going to talk about how we're going to cover SIGGRAPH. So we know we're covering SIGRAPH. I think in Cinegear, we had some un- uncertainty about what our access would look like and how it would look, but we're not worried about SIGRAPH. And so what we want to do is uh, we're pulling together the team. Um, I think that I posted in Discord a link that if you're interested in being on the team, either offsite or onsite, site, uh, you can sign up for it and um and so, um, I would highly recommend being in this first meeting if you're interested. Uh, we'll help, we'll leave it open for a couple of weeks and then we'll close it up. Um, but we're basically there's a three day conference. Uh, I think right now, what we're thinking about, and you know we'll keep evolving, but I think that what we're looking at right now is two hours each day. So instead of having a day where we do all after hours, um, I think what we're looking at now is doing two hours of um, of live broadcast each day. That way we can error correct between each day. So we go, oh, this was a little bit better or let's do this a little bit this way. And so there'll be a little bit shorter um, uh, runs. Um, we'll probably do HDR and 5.1 uh, testing between, you know, around those as well. So there'll be, those won't be part of the mainstream, um, but they will be there. The um, And we may get them in the mainstream. The, the main thing that I've had with the, the the HDR is that it hasn't, I feel like the tone mapping hasn't been perfect. And so that's been the reason that we we haven't done it that way. We are looking at possibly getting some booth space. So we're still working on that. We should know that by in the next week or two. Um, and then if we get booth space, we're looking at getting Internet. And the big thing there is that if we get Internet at a booth space, it really will change what we can do at the show. So um, now we can have a desk space. And we're what's interesting is, is that we're not looking at having what we're looking at is having a desk space. It Has two or three cameras, but only one person. So the person, or one or two people, but it's the vendors or the people we want to interview are going to be looking at the panel. <laughs> so the panel is the is the interviewers. The host, quote unquote, host at the desk will actually be the panel if if we can pull this off. So we're, um, and then we have the live view. The live view has been set up with multiple cameras now, so we've got that all working. So the the live view can work out there. We'll also have some teredex uh, to to kind of roam around. So. I think it's going to be another step forward in in our in the coverage that we've been doing. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that um, you know I think it it could be really good. And so Brian is Raj is doing the on the on the ground, and and Brian is doing uh, the kind of the the in the cloud um, overview of this process. One thing we've decided is uh, there's always got to be producers before we start saying we're going to cover something, <laughs> and, and those producers cannot be me. So so anyway so so uh, I'm really excited. I mean now Raj and 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 uh, and Brian have seen a couple of these shows inside and out. So they're the ones that are really working on the on the design. But but Best we're going to start counts. meeting every week
0: so amazing and exciting and there's a video that I saw recently on LinkedIn I think John you might have shared it with Andy Carluccio and Richard Lavery, and they were the the screens in the booth and there I think there was a correspondent or, or a host is that kind of what you're saying Alex because I was trying well, to visualize
2: We won't cut it I mean you'll just see them you know you'll see us okay. and then there'll be a window that they're looking at into it so we're not trying to uh, we're not trying to do any kind of uh screens or anything else there you're literally the person who wants to show you something whether it's a computer graphics program or a a device or whatever is going to be sitting at the table they're going to be looking at a a teleprompter and so we'll see what you know we'll just see behind them but we're not cutting to any wide shots they're just here at the stage you know and and we might have a wide shot that shows you what's happening the big thing is i want to put cameras over top and kind of close up so that we can basically Get if they're showing something, we can get close-ups of that and and show how that works. And so that's the that's the thing that we're really kind of working through is or that that's the innovation there. Um, but the idea is to pull their interest or pull their them right to us. Um, but I'm not having them try to look at at the screens, you know. Gotcha. And um, it makes it a much more compact setup at a booth. I don't think we're going to have a lot of booth space, um, and it makes it much more compact. It also drives their attention towards the panel. And in this case, we will have a. Very low, uh, low latency connection to the to the to the. If we get the booth space and if we get the internet there, it'll be pretty straightforward.
5: Courtney,
4: I don't know about uh, at Siggraph. Uh, it's been a while since I've been to Siggraph, but I, last time I went, the most of the things that are shown at Siggraphs are computer systems or software systems tightly integrated with hardware that do specific stuff. And, and I don't think I, any of them are portable enough to bring out to another booth. That's the thing. That's what, what I would worry about that setup that you're describing. It's,
2: it's only that 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 would be only one of three things, three ways that we're covering the event. So it's it would be in a two-hour uh, break, it'd be two or three people. I'm there's definitely gonna be things at Seagraph that we can show. Um it, it doesn't have to be, you know, but the vast majority of us still alive you or the Teradex or both, uh roaming around. So we'll be still roaming around doing all the roaming around that we did before. It's just that we will have um the uh, uh, we'll have the booth and what's nice is we'll be able to go back to that desk and it gives us a breath to get somewhere else and, and so on and so forth. So I think it, I think it'll be useful.
0: And just to, to pull in. So what they're saying, um, the producers in the comments, they think that the confusion is on the time as is that Discord automatically adjusted the time for everyone. So, for example, the meeting shows up at 2 p.m. for for them. So just we'll we'll get that that sorted out. On know. their yeah. On Discord. their end.
2: I don't know why <laughs> Good old anyway, so yeah.
0: <laughs> Good old Discord. Well, we're moving right along into are getting ready to get into our our second hour as we get into food content um ryan hinkson of eat famous will be speaking with us and uh, super excited because just from the times that we've had our brainstorm sessions and especially on mondays when we cover things of like the business of marketing content innovation and having a significant number of of influencers and leaders in the space, to have someone who has been able to, you know, start uh, their Instagram account and growing that to roughly over two hundred and thirty thousand, you know, followers and really building community. So I'm looking forward to getting into this conversation so we can get like really the behind the scenes and nitty gritty. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? Welcome to Office Hours.
6: Good morning, Liv. How are you doing? Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being here. And so I I recall, I think it was um, Shirley with the Black Canadian content creators. And she would always say like, Ryan from Eat Famous, you know, Ryan from Eat Famous. And I'm like, what am I missing out on? And then I I saw your account. I got a chance to meet you. And I was like, oh, Ryan from Eat Famous. So talk (laughs) to us about the evolution. Like, where did Eat Famous come from? And a little bit more about yourself as a food culturist, culture. Right.
6: Yes. So I, I am a food culturalist, um, probably a title or a job description that many people aren't familiar with. And I actually love that because I feel like when you are job title is something that people don't know exactly what it is. No one can ever tell you you're doing it wrong or that you're doing a bad job. Uh, but basically what most of my days look like is um, it, it starts with me con- uh, sorry, creating content. I primarily um, use Instagram. I have an Instagram account called at eat famous, just over 285,000 followers. I, I do focus on the city of Toronto as that's where I'm I'm based out of. But I also travel a lot and create content globally. I work with a lot of restaurants and brands on creating digital content for them, whether that's content that's going to live on my account or um, things specifically for them to use in their marketing and branding as well. I've worked with uh, a lot of local and, um, you know, uh, restaurants that Toronto has really embraced and loved over the years. And I've also had the ability or the opportunity, I should say, to work with a lot of brands like Google, uh, the Toronto Raptors, NFL Canada, uh, Hudson's Bay, um, McDonald's, Burger King, Domino's um, on, on creating some fun social content.
0: So if you can, you you threw a term out there for us, a food yes. culturalist. Yes. Can you break that down for us? And you, you shared, yeah, let's start there, just breaking that right. down and what that means.
6: So I think it's an, a constantly evolving type um, of, of job and term because the field that I'm in is always constantly evolving and changing. Primarily what I do is I, I try to tell the story of food. So not just what's going to pop up on the plate, but um you know trends, what's happening, who's influencing it. Um you know who are some of the unsung heroes of the food world that are, you know, creating things and you know why things show up on plates, why food around the world and around this city is so different and so important and just you know using the power of digital and community to not only share, again, the delicious things that I get to eat, but um, the stories of those people who who make it possible for us to do so.
0: So where you are right now and to when you actually started, like what was the the moment that you said, you know what? I right. want to try capturing stories of, mm-hmm. of food and the people behind it. Like what right. has someone start doing that?
6: Yeah, so at, at first, you know, it was really just um, collecting uh, content, creating content, collecting photos and posting videos of my food adventures. The account wasn't front facing when I when I say front facing. I mean, um, I wasn't even um, showing myself like there's there no real personality to the account. It was just these really um, you know, amazing shots of like very indulgent food. Sometimes there may be a burger with like ten patties or uh, a slice of pizza that you know you could sleep comfortably underneath. Um, but what I realized is as the community started to grow, you know, uh, followers and, and the people that I was meeting with, they really wanted to know okay, yeah, that looks cre- incredible, that looks delicious, but you know, who made it? Or is that really good? And then I noticed that the story behind, you know, the whys um, really started to captivate people. Um, and then also, when a lot of brands that I grew up as just a customer of, Started reaching out, and you know, not just asking me to um, highlight them or, or take photos, but really help kind of you know capture what I felt about the, you know their products and their services. So I, I, that's what led me to understand that people are very interested in the story.
0: I'm sorry, we have a a lot of just even in the Office Hours community, there's a lot of foodies. Um, Alex is a a food connoisseur as well. But just even breaking down how how you tell that story. And Mm -hmm. and to your point, you said trends. And and I recognize like even just going through your account and how Mm -hmm. you are like sometimes there and sometimes there are moments where you like you said, you're talking through or you're doing like a live review. And then there are Mm -hmm. moments where it's just possible like trending audio, and then you're just taking some bites. Can you talk us through the the, pro- the that process for yourself of, of coming up with your your content calendar and how you're actually tracking what what hits and what doesn't, and how right. much of that is like, no, I know what what it is, and it's like, yeah. no, the people have said it.
6: Right. So there's, you know, there's myself, there's the people, and then there's also a looming third party that wields a lot of influence. Um, and whether that's, you know, Instagram or the algorithm, you know, every creator today, um, I don't have any hair, but, you know, is, is constantly pulling out their hair, trying to figure out how to, you know, to grow and to capture audience and to even, you know, retain um, the attention of a large audience that you spent some time to to cultivate and grow, um, a lot of it, you know, I feel it feels like muscle memory. I, I've definitely been doing this for a, quite some time. I would say about eight years now, professionally. Um, and you know, I think it's it's having an awareness of um, of what people are responding to. To a degree, but then also um, reminding yourself about what you did when no one was paying attention—that obviously got you some attention because a lot of times, you know, you mentioned the trending audio thing, and that's definitely something I I use because you know we're told um, that these are the things that people are responding to. So there's a, there's quite a balance. I, it's funny I always draw in food analogies. So when I think of like. Uh, you know, a server at a restaurant with a whole bunch of plates stacked and they're trying to balance it. So, um, you know, it's it's part my creative vision. It's part what I, I feel that my audience wants to see and will respond to. And then, you know, there are certain parameters that are shaping the way that creators um, are producing content because um, as these these social platforms grow and as they they definitely are more driven by, you know, their ad revenue, they, they want things to look and feel a certain way. So it's, um, it's like, yeah, definitely a lot of balance and error, a lot of error sometimes, but, um, just, you know, also keeping it going.
0: I've got like two quick questions before I get to our panel and their questions and producers, it's a great opportunity for any questions that you may have for Ryan around food content creation and just even the, the community side. And so, you mentioned that part of the reason like even coming on office hours and and sharing your story is mm-hmm. that if you had someone to to like help with that blueprint and yes. and figuring it out what would if you were to say like one Important tip, or that you've seen for anyone who's looking to get started yes. in content creation, food specifically, a niche, right. what a niche area. What would that advice be, or the learning that you're like, ah, oh, this did not work in the beginning. Yeah. Run away, don't do that.
6: <laughs> um, so I would say, first off, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, when I first started, there were a couple of really, really large accounts that existed and in my mind i i always wanted to know how they would do certain things whether that was like from a technical standpoint or just you know uh uh, looking at growth or um i don't want to say manipulating but maneuvering through this very very new platform um and coming to meet those individuals i found that like People are, are, I think, a lot more willing to answer questions and share advice um, than we think they are. I, I, I was watching the show prior to jumping on, and I, I just like marvel at how much great, free flowing information we have these days. Um, and I think a lot of times when you're new in a space, you don't think that you've earned the right to approach someone. And I mean, you know, without sounding kind of funny about it, most people that are, are creators are sharing in a digital space want to be seen. They want to be asked things. They want to be, you know, kind of regarded as, as experts. Um, and it took a long time for me to build up the confidence to sort of just ask people, hey, how much do you charge for this? Are you being paid for this? Um, why does your background look better than mine? What camera are you using? All these kind of things that I I kind of, um, you know, I felt like I wasted a lot of time Kind of figuring things out on my own, rather than um, you know looking to the leaders in my field and, and just trying. Because I know for myself, I, I willingly answer and try to mentor uh, the young and up-and-coming creators in my space.
0: So ask questions, don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm -hmm. The question I have for you is community, how that you've you've gotten to somewhat of like a very decent and admirable scale, how are you managing community? What does that entail for you to keep people engaged?
6: Mm -hmm. So I think um, even speaking to what I I, I closed with, uh, being very, very open to, no, not all of my followers. Everyone in my community aspires to do what I do. But being accessible, um, you know, if if someone is asking a question, I try to reply to every single comment, DM. Sometimes it, it may take long. Um, if if something's doing really well, and you know, there's a lot, but I'm I'm very big on the fact that um, you know I created this for a community, for an audience. So I don't see myself as some figure that looms above that. I feel like I'm I'm in it. Um, you know, I, I'm often collaborating with my peers. Uh, I do a lot of work with other creatives. And I find that a lot of times my best work comes when, when I'm um you know working with others that I that I follow, that I admire. So those are are really, really, really big things. And then just being um out there, you know, especially. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, with the ability to um, revisit restaurants and, you know, support local causes and just really being involved. um, It is a big help. And then, you know, obviously, what I do captures that so making
2: sure it's it's out there. Alex, got a couple questions. It's really great to have you here. Thanks so much for your time.
0: Um,
2: The uh, so how do you? Are you primarily all Instagram, or how do you interact with the different various platforms that that you might have available to you?
6: Right. So, uh, primarily Instagram. I I do have a a presence on TikTok as well. It's funny because I remember years ago when I I kind of sensed that TikTok was a place to be, but I was like, I don't know how to dance like these kids, so I'm not going to open a you know a, a, a TikTok account. But. Um, being being you know i think available to not just your core audience but other potential audiences and pools of people or businesses it, it's vital um you know i i get posed the question all the time hey you've got this great following on instagram but what if you know tomorrow you wake up and the app's disabled or it's gone or you know it's lost its popular popularity what do you do next so um you know i i've had to you know it, i think you know there's um a tendency when you when you do well in a really specific space or field, you want to kind of stay there, you know, you feel like you figured it out, it's comfortable, but, um, you know, growing and, and kind of stepping into to other waters is very important. So uh, I've definitely actually been recently really working at trying to be more visible on TikTok and, and other platforms and just also staying abreast of what may be next. Right, because I'm right. sure the next best thing, the next big thing, no one's even heard of yet. So,
2: yeah, yeah, and and how do you do you interact with both uh, TikTok and Instagram? So you use Instagram to send people over to TikTok and let yes. people know. So that it's, it, that's always the challenge is figuring out how do you do you put the same content on both of them, or do you te- use TikTok to tell people that there's something on on, or use Instagram that, mm-hmm. to tell people that there's something on TikTok.
6: Right. So the, yeah, exactly. So that's primarily when I first started having presence on TikTok. Um I tried to use Instagram to migrate people over, and also to let them know, hey, um, I'm not just there, but you may get a slightly different experience. Although both platforms primarily, you know, kind of are looking to serve the same audience and like they, you know, provide like a similar experience. There's vast differences. Um, and so I do find that the easy thing is would be to just repurpose content from you know one to the other. But I, I do notice that there's things that um, and I, I look at scale, so not just the number, because I have a larger number on Instagram, but I notice there's some things that perform very well on one platform versus the other. Uh it can be a v- very tough creating, you know, two or three versions of the same content for different platforms but um, you do have to be mindful of, of you know where you're playing and and scale it as best as you can
2: you find that it's really important to be to really generate native content i mean oftentimes yeah. i see instagram folks will put stuff on that's in obviously instagram on yeah. tiktok and you immediately yeah. go oh come on right <laughs> like you know yeah
6: it, and if i i i also know that like the uh, platforms themselves um, they don't they don't like that right you right. know what i mean like um, I used to see, I, you don't see so much of it now, but watch, you know, you still do a lot of times on Instagram, you're seeing videos with like that TikTok watermark on there. And I know from um, some discussions I've been privy to, like Instagram will will not send as many of those out. Like, I mean, if something's killing it and going viral, then of course they're going to share it, but they'd rather have
2: something creative natively in in app, right? On both sides. And, and you know, we're a bunch of gearheads. Uh, what, what, what are the, what are your tools? What do you, what do you use to k- generate your content?
6: Um, so primarily uh, for myself, I, I heavily rely on my, my phone. Um, I've always been teetering on, you know, do I need to level up um, in terms of like my primary source of capturing for like, you know, using cameras. And I remember I, for a time I did, and I just didn't have the same personal level of comfort. Mm-hmm. Also, I think it's really um, dependent on like the the type of content that you create. On Eat Famous, it's a lot of like very indulgent, over the top stuff. And I find a lot of times a very close up shot that I can just like kind of stick the phone right in front of the um, right in front of the food or the subject the best result when i was doing that um with the camera it, it didn't have the same feeling um i use you know like some handheld like newer newer lights um depending on you know we're in Toronto so we're subject to subject to like 23 well i'm in Toronto i should say subject to like 20 different seasons of weather a day or a week sometimes. Um, so there are, there may be times where, you know, I'm using things to just like block shadows and, you know, things of that nature, but for myself, it's a, a fairly simple and approachable setup in terms yeah. of, uh, gear for myself. Yeah.
2: I know I, I went to, I was on, on air at, on, at, um, in Toronto I was up there once a month for years and, uh, you're in the perfect place to do food. Like it, it is just like, it is yes. the, one of the best food, uh, cities in the world, you know, just really- the diversity is just insane. Um when you when you look at uh oh by the way, what phone? We, we oh we, sorry, you? Uh, yeah, an iPhone uh uh Pro Max uh, yeah
6: 13, 14. Uh 13 currently, but I've actually been seeing um some great images coming from the latest Samsung, and yeah. I've I've been blown away. And like any of my friends that our, you know, Team Samsung, they're going to relish this. I'm sure they're probably going to be recording or screenshotting this right now and playing it back to me when we kind of go at each other. Um, <laughs> but I have, I can't lie, I have been considering a switch is, this seems to be outperforming yeah. currently. Um,
2: and and when you think about, when you think about building the content, how does the algorithm affect the way that you approach wh- how you make the content, what you choose right. for content, et cetera?
6: Right. So, um, in terms of like what I capture, um, doesn't really change too much. So I, I kind of have a mix of um, restaurants and foods that I love or that I want to try. And then also really trying to stay on top of food trends, those spots that people are speaking about. So where I go and what I do doesn't vary too much, um, which is funny because I, you see it with restaurants where a lot of new restaurants are very driven by being appealing to um, social media content and capturing. But when it comes to actually creating it, um, I feel like, and and Lib had mentioned this in a in a question that, you know, sometimes it might be me speaking about the experience, other times it's just some trending audio. Um, I feel like if the content, you know, s- speaks for itself, then maybe I may pull back in terms of how much I'm, you know speaking on it or, you know, uh, doing a voiceover on there. Whereas if it's something that is new, and I feel like, uh, you know, oftentimes I may have the the privilege of going to a restaurant before it opens. So um, like when the NBA Portside restaurant opened, I, I got to go a couple of weeks before it's public opening. So something like that, I'm definitely going to give a lot of like not like statistics and information you know when it's opening what the menu is going to be like who's the chef there what was driving it if there's already been a decent amount of conversation about somewhere then i might try to let my my imagery or how i put the content together speak as opposed to myself
0: there was this um this pizza one that you had and and exactly when you said that i instantly could see how you've been how you shifted based on that like let the food the food is the star yes. uh, of the content and what people are looking for jason mm-hmm.
1: so i will i will echo the welcome very much to welcome to our to our little community um i'm curious when you said phone only my immediate thought was has he tried a phone gimbal have you
6: Oh yes, yes,
1: yes, 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 yes. Um, I have and it still
6: for the majority of the time lives in the box. I I've watched a ton of videos. So if anyone has a recommendation on like a very basic beginner video on how to properly use it, I, I mean I understand the basics of it, but I find like I don't know if it's a lack of coordination, but I'm not getting what I see other people getting from using that that device. So a lot of times. Um, I, I really just try to steady my hand. It's a lot of sh- taking the same shot over and over, uh, but I do definitely have a foam yard Yes, it just it's a little dusty.
1: <laughs> All right, Jason. we are definitely your place for that. Um, right. I've got one more if if um, if yeah, it works. Yeah, so Which are your projects were you skeptical of at first that ended yes. up you know wildly exceeding your expectations? You know, as right. far as audience participation or something. Mm-hmm.
6: I've got a, a great answer for this, because although it, it happened a couple of years ago, um, I remember being so nervous. So I have had the good fortune of having a large account for a while. So a lot of the, the work I get comes into me. Um, but every now and then, you know, I I will pitch to, to brands or restaurants if I feel like there could be some synergy or if it makes sense in my mind that we work with one another. So very early on, um, because like I said, I, you know, use a lot of um, indulgent type foods is my, um, my subjects, I was thinking to myself, I was actively courting McDonald's, but not in like the typical McDonald's way. What I would do is I would go with friends and like buy a whole bunch of burgers and like make my own kind of like creations from McDonald's. And I would post them and tag them. Um, no response, no follows, no likes, no comments, nothing from them. And then I had a friend who, uh, we had a close relationship with some folks at the marketing team there. And I said, Hey, you know, I've actively been trying to like get their attention. Do they know me? Can you ask someone? And, and he came back and he's like, Yeah, they know you. But, you know, they were actually trying to move towards, um, you know, having their products be perceived as a lot more healthier as, you know, the, the opinion goes of them, right? So I was like, Okay, I got it. So I started, I stopped like making these crazy McDonald's concoctions. But uh, a couple months after I got invited to an event, by a friend of mine who um, was was one of their ambassadors. So I went to a, an event at their head office and you know, just met people, spoke to uh, some folks in their marketing department. And um, a couple of weeks later, I get an email saying, hey, we would love to, to work with you. So I was like, yes, success. Um, you know, I've done it, I've kind of like snagged the big dog in terms of the uh, fast food world. But then I started to get nervous because I remember I built my fan base going to, you know, spots that like um, weren't like a McDonald's, you know. Um, So, you know, like burgers that may have been grounded, like fresh every day. And, you know, these darlings of like a a scene that, you know, was emerging where people were like really more into kind of like a don't want to say like a boutique style burger, but like, you know, there's there's a lot of spots in Toronto like Rudy Burger Drops, Fully Chuck, that like specialty burger thing, and I was like, oh wow, is my audience going to think I'm selling out? Sorry, it's been a long way to to finish a great.
1: No, purchase. I love this answer. Go ahead. Yeah.
6: So I was like, oh, my audience is going to think I'm I'm selling out. Like, how much more corporate in the food world can you get than McDonald's? Um, and also because there's such a large corporation that measures exactly everything they do. Um, you know they have a laundry list of rules. As whereas when I was working with these mom and pop places, they're like, "Hey, ride, go for it, just run, do it, think, do whatever you think works best." Um, so I was like, "How am I going to maintain the creativity uh, with these constraints, and then also have my audience appreciate what I'm doing?" Because I can already sense the skepticism. So I almost started like regretting the fact that I had actively courted them. Um, but I, I just d- dug really deep and found a way. I think. To um, you know, serve kind of uh, both needs, and the campaigns actually did surprisingly well. There was definitely a lot of folks saying, "Hey, like I can't believe you eat this stuff," you know. But um, over, but but uh, it it resulted in a in a long partnership and uh, some great content. So yes, sorry, a very long winded answer, but um, yeah.
5: But an important one,
0: because that thought of the thought of like, if I go this route, am I that selling out? So thank you for, you know, the authenticity with that. And we'll go with Courtney before getting to our producer questions.
4: Good to see you here, Ryan. Uh, You know, a lot of food sites, I'm a sucker for food and almost all the food sites that i like to go to are comfort food. You know, the the high calorie thing, the high calorie (laughs) items that look so delicious and all that lovely tasting grease. Cheese, oh yeah, <laughs> sorry that. Uh, but uh, is there such a thing as a a health oriented or diet oriented uh, groups on in the Instagram? There are food sites that that concentrate on the uh, uh, rather than how to you know, you know satisfy your palate, how to satisfy your waistline.
6: Yeah, hey Courtney, um, that's a great question because if uh, you take a look at my account, that I, we're, we're brothers because that's definitely the kind of stuff I love. Uh, comfort food cheese is is one of my best friends. But yeah, there there are definitely a lot of um, accounts that that serve that niche. Um, but a great thing too is what I've found is a lot of creators and even myself, although it may not be apparent with just a quick glance at my accountings, I do try to inject. Uh, a little bit of realism, because I mean, if you looked at the account, people are always asking me, How do you eat like that? Like this is impossible. Um I think what's lost sometimes is, you know we forget that with these social platforms. The creator gets to decipher or um you know decide on how much you see and when. So it might look like every day i'm I'm going to town with poutines and cheese fries and stuff like that, but i'm I'm not so. A lot of times, um, when I'm getting that question, "How do you eat like this? How are you not ten thousand pounds or whatever may come through?" You know, every now and then I'm throwing a story up of myself um, making a smoothie, having the salads, all the things that I do daily. Honestly, that allow me to indulge when it is time to create content. Um, So you've got the full spectrum. You've got folks that are are completely dedicated to you know very. Um, healthy, uh, you know, perfect lifestyle type of accounts, and then you know you've got folks like myself who may share the odd indulgence, but then be um, are are cognizant of the fact that you know a little bit of everything um, and balance helps as well.
0: Wonderful answers. All right, Jason,
1: let's get into it. You got it. Paul Walhoose in Austin, Texas, writes in, why Houston? Why not Austin, <laughs> Elgin, Lockhart, etc.? Why? When do you return to Texas?
6: Well, I, I hope to get back to Texas very, very soon. Um, I went because I was actually working with uh, Houston's Board of Tourism. So highlighting that city to um, my follower base, primarily the folks in Toronto. I had uh, an incredible time. And it's funny that, you know, that question pops up because i threw thrown up a reel that it's it's still doing pretty well. Still were about 5 million views and, you know, hundreds of thousands of likes and a lot of love. But it it was based on my recommendation for the top five barbecue spots in Houston. But along with that love came a lot of hate, a lot of debate, a lot of very angry Houstonians, a lot of angry Texans who felt like, you know, Houston is not the Mecca of barbecue, so it caused a lot of discussion, which was great, which is probably why it's doing so well on IG, because, um, you know, there's a lot of chatter going on. But I, I definitely hope to be in, in Texas soon. It far it exceeded my expectations,
0: I have to say. When something like that happens where you you see there's, it's engagement nonetheless, yes. because they're, they're commenting, yes. do mm-hmm. you follow up with something equally as, or maybe space it out and bring that back? Like, how do you navigate yeah. that when you, you see a trigger?
6: Right, so it's, you know, I think the first instinct is to jump back on it and try to recreate that exact same magic. A lot of times you won't see that immediately pan out um, you know sometimes like even for an account as large as mine, those type of um, occurrences when you're you're just getting that super viral thing it's, it's still not, it's not a weekly occurrence for myself, right it just a lot of times um, you know that thing even I think a parallel kind of thought is it's not even just recreate, recreating the ones that have done well so you're trying to get that again that exact response or reaction again. A lot of times, the things that I think are going to kill out the gate um, don't do as well. I had a I had a video from that same trip where there's um, an alligator on a spit being roasted, and I thought everybody would go wild for that, like that visual of the alligator because it, it's just so striking. And again, you know, I, I thought there would be thousands of people saying, "Oh my gosh, did you eat that?" or that's crazy. That's disgusting. Um, and they did fairly well, but nowhere near just, hey, these are my top five barbecue spots. So I think you've got to just kind of go at it organically. Um, I mean, it would be silly to ignore the possibility of saying, hey, exploring and like deep diving into what you did and saying, hey, is there something here? Is this maybe, you know, what the next wave of my thing should be like, but um, expecting a hit on social every time is, is very difficult. Next
5: question.
1: Rajan Chandil in Los Angeles, California, writes in, uh, do you do any social media marketing to help attract new audience members? Um,
6: I have done that in the past. Um, and it, it, it's tough to measure sometimes because, um, you know, there's, there's times of, of like a lot of growth and a lot of times I can deliberately attribute that to to content. And then there's times where I I don't know if I feel like maybe just the Instagram gods are, are serving me new followers. So um I I'm personally I guess at a a place where although I'm not satisfied with I love I would love to have a million followers. I'd love to have 10 million followers, but um I, I'm more focused on um like high quality content than trying to grow per se. Um just or at least growing in that way because um, I find that like a lot of my peers that uh, would be maybe defined as like micro-influencers or have smaller niche followings um, could be doing just as well because with a number as large as mine, the truth is you're still only really able to impact or reach or even um, interact with a, a small number of, of folks. So growth isn't always my, or it's not as much of a prime concern as it used to be for me.
1: Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, who's been your biggest encourager and what did they teach you?
6: Oh, wow. That is a a great, great question. I think my biggest encourager would be my wife. So when I first started this, I was working for... Uh, a corporation that I had worked for for many, many years, a very large, well-known corporation. Um, and although, you know, I'd had some great experiences, built some great relationships, it wasn't truly it wasn't truly me. So Eat Famous had functioned as like a side hustle um, for a couple of years while I was there. And then it felt like I had two nine to fives because I was putting equal or probably more effort into um, growing and, and working through Eat Famous. And I was um, you know, making money as well um, with be Famous as sort of a side gig. And I remember when I just felt kind of burnt out and I, I wasn't um I wasn't in love with my corporate job. And it was my wife that said, Hey, you know, you've been doing this thing that has been serving you and has created some joy and some incredible opportunity, and you're really, really good at this. Um, why not do that? And I remember, you know, having a family. And um, just, you know, having that comfort of my job um, probably instilled a lot of fear of, you know, leaving it or, or shaking things up. Um, and I, I know I was probably ready to have made the, the switch and work for myself um, much earlier than I did. I mean, I've been at it for my, on my own for a couple of years and it's the best decision I ever made. But I, I definitely have to credit her with being that first person to say, really go for it
1: next question uh, Dave Troutman in Edmonton Canada writes in what approach do you take to encourage people to be adventurous and try new foods
6: oh you know what it is it's definitely trying things that like if you ask the people that know me best um that like that trying that from like being scared or vulnerable on social in the moment um when I'm trying I've had like beetle stew I've had um, I've had a lot of things that uh, people would probably be quite squirmish about. So I think a lot of times if I can do it, and I, it's funny, I was a very picky kid growing up. I ate like one of five things at any given time, like no more than that. So a lot of folks that knew me when I was younger, very surprised that like even some of the things that aren't um, quote unquote that, that outrageous, they're just like, wow, you used to be very, very picky. So um, a lot of times, if I can jump on and show people that, hey, you only live once, or you know, if it's not going to kill you, why not try it? So I, yeah, I, I think and there's no other way to, to convince people to be adventurous, but to be adventurous yourself in front of them.
1: Next question. Uh, Rajan Shandil in Los Angeles, California writes in, what are your favorite social food channels, contents, and cookbook?
6: Oh, wow, okay. Um, my favorite cookbook, currently and it's funny we're, we're heading back to texas texas and i have a thing there is um a, a great cook uh chef scotty scott and he's got a cookbook called fix me a plate um so a lot of you know southern staples there's a lot of soul food in there uh so you know like um chicken and waffles and great cornbread recipe peach cobbler things like that that book has been like been great um, and there's also a um, a book called Yod, and Yod is slang for like home, like so Jamaican slang for like home, whether it's the island or your own home. That's why a chef originally from Toronto named uh, Adrian Forte. So um, those are two books that I'm loving right now. In terms of uh, accounts, oh wow, I could go on forever and ever and ever. There's so many um great uh food accounts in toronto and abroad that i follow and of course now i'm going to draw a blank because you know i've been asked the question um but there's an account called the six eats a local toronto based one that i love um let me start with the toronto folks mark um TO's finest is an incredible um account if you're looking for a great food in toronto um uh oh, wow there's so many
0: That's that's a good start too because I had (laughs) a friend who was on a podcast and Mm -hmm. you know you're on the spot and then she's like oh I should have said all these people we don't want you to have any enemies so that's that's a good place there but even um, with Rajan's question like Mm -hmm. even how do you where do you draw inspiration as you prepare like you kind of told us about the trends but. How do you even decide this is right. what I'm going to cover?
6: so you know what? when I see something that um has so it's funny there's um there was uh, there's a production company based out of Toronto called Royce Visuals, and they do incredible work. So whenever they go to a restaurant before me, I'm like, oh, I throw my hands up because I'm like, how am I going to compete with what they do because their their method of capturing things. Is just um, it's it's incredible. It feels like you're watching a movie other like every time. But that drives me. You know what I mean? Because now I'm going in knowing that a good portion of my audience, because I'm a lot of the top accounts share followers, um, you know, has seen the food presented this way. So it really makes me want to up my game and and think about how I am going to not only show this in um, in a way in a manner that's true to myself. But in a way that, you know, knocks people's socks off, that makes them pay attention because I know it's already been covered and, and somebody's done a great job with doing
0: so. Awesome. Next question.
1: Robert Sabade in Piastow, Poland writes in, what uh, makes you choose photographic content over video content? And to complicate the question, when do you choose to tell your own story over allowing someone else to tell theirs?
6: Oh, that's actually a great question. So I will say um, I've definitely moved more towards video as you know, um, posting reels on Instagram is going a lot further. Um, I, I built the account on photos, so it's it's definitely been tough for me to move away from that, um, especially because I feel like the style that that really really worked for me actually is oddly um, best captured in in a still photo, but I. But if you do look at the account, it's, it's definitely gravitated to more video content. Um, and to follow up... Sorry, could you just uh, remind me of the second part of the question? That was actually a really great part of it. I just want to make sure I get
1: it. Clear. Uh, yeah, choosing to tell your own story over allowing right. someone else to tell theirs. Oh, right.
6: Um, so that that's actually a fantastic question. I think um, it really depends on, on the who and what. A lot of times, I, I I go to restaurants where whether it's the food or the chef or the owner or the staff there that like they're so interesting, they're so passionate. Um, I just know that like you know the camera will love them. And a lot of times, or if it's a, a food that just like you can't keep your eyes off, I, I will definitely you know have no issue letting those people or or that thing shine. Um, there's sometimes where my reaction or my experience is the story right and I think it it comes naturally for myself I'm a big believer in like over capturing content there I'd rather spend you know hours there and and having a long kind of tedious editing process but not missing anything um, as opposed to going in with a single focus which can be much more effective of course but then, you know, having that kind of remorse afterwards thinking, Oh, wow. Why did I spend more time talking to this person or that? I didn't get this cheese pull from that perfect angle. So, um, a lot of times I, I kind of just take in everything I've, I've captured and, and see what best fits.
0: How long did it take for you to find your your style based just mm. even listening to this this question by Robert? It's like, oh, but then it's also your style because you mentioned that mobile has been your choice because there's just an ease of use and a fluidity. Mm-hmm. And you really yeah. do have a dynamic presence when you're you know displaying and sharing your story about the food. So mm-hmm. what was that like?
6: Um, so early on, because I, I started eating. It was, um, I don't want to say accidentally, but I, w- I was doing something else. I was working on another business idea with a friend of mine that required that I, I be in restaurants a lot and take some photos. So as I was personally discovering Instagram, um, my mind just told me, Hey, you know what? We're working on this food related business idea. Let's start getting to some of this content up because people are sharing a lot of, um, of food content recently. So, um, I, I, at first I, I would say that like, if, if it was a cheesesteak or a cheesecake, you, you would have a hard time determine like deciphering what I was posting. Like I was using probably an iPhone 3, you know, it was very drainy. Um, I didn't know that, um, you know, you could bring lights with you if, if lighting wasn't optimal to a space. So it was really just, um, me seeing accounts that I liked and not mimicking them, but, um, but like understanding what it is I liked about them. And I was always just drawn to, to images that felt like you could reach through your screen and like grab them or taste them. Um, I you know, that right away they kind of like poke you or or, or like slap you in the face and wake you up. So um once I got better in terms of my my execution, um you know, I kind of leaned into that. And then I also just was able to really tell what people were responding to because at first it was a lot of just like, you know, throwing, throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it sticks.
1: Great. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, do you think that partnering with content creators could be beneficial for driving traffic to restaurants?
6: Oh, I'm a hundred percent. And I don't say that because I am a content creator, but um I've seen the difference. I, I feel like I I do run social media for a, a handful of restaurants locally in the area. Um so I, I've seen the difference. Um, and not attributing it to myself, but I think any capable content creator who understands your brand um can definitely help. Also because um, you know, this function is not it's not old, right? Like this, this, this necessity to have a presence on social media is kind of something that's been thrust or forced upon, you know, new businesses over the last couple of years. And a lot of times, especially in the restaurant space, um, if you're just opening, you're doing so much, right? There's, there's a lot of work. And if you can have someone who can capture that, um, I think it, it, it definitely makes sense to do. Uh, I, I've seen the rewards, not only for, for my own clients, but for restaurants throughout the city.
1: Next question. Rajan Shandil writes in from Los Angeles Which food, if you filmed and after you filmed it and ate it, can't stop dreaming about eating again and again oh, and geez.
6: again? Great, great, great question. Um, recently, I, I went to a restaurant in Toronto called Miss Licklemore, Um and they do. A what's called a mac pie. So it's like, I, I'm, my family's from Barbados, so I'm gonna say a Bayesian version, but a lot of folks in the Caribbean, Trinidad, especially, too, uh, make mac pie. So it's it's similar to like mac and cheese, um, but it's more, it's a little more like kind of like in a casserole. It's not as like creamy um, as they say a traditional mac and cheese. And it's my favorite food. It's the thing that like my folks always make sure is on the table whenever I go home to eat. Um, but they do a version with uh, with braised oxtail on top of it and um, since I, I had it about three weeks ago and I, I've already been plotting or planning my next trip there, it's such a, a, like an uh, incredible dish, incredible, incredible.
0: I saw that video and I was <laughs> like, that's on my radar sometime, summer, fall, I
1: need to make it out there.
0: <laughs> next it's question.
1: Easy. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada writes: "In food is often the reason people gather. This produces a sense of community. What effect does this have on the style of food people prepare?"
6: Oh wow, that's a, a great question and also a very very true statement. Um, the, the thing I love, and even to maybe further that point, the thing I love about food, and I believe it was Alex, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that mentioned you know how great of the city Toronto is in terms of multiculturalism and diversity, that food is often our very first, um, you know, kind of like trip that we take to another community or another culture or to really, really get to know someone. We do use it. When we gather, we use it to celebrate. We use it to console. Um, And I feel like that really um, is what um, makes it kind of like radiate and shine on that plate. When people are presenting it, um, as asked the question, I think you know, there's so much pride that comes from not just like highlighting something that's your own personally, but I think those links go deeper into like family. A lot of restaurants, you know, whether they're they're large or small, most of the initial recipes were based on something that someone ate growing up, you know, something that really meant something to them. um so yeah, that that's a, a, my, one of my biggest, uh, Joys about being in this city and working in the food space is that food is such a great connector to to people, to history, um, and brings people together. Whether it's you know um, bringing people that you're already familiar with together, or people who could be strangers, that's also um, yeah a big part of it.
0: And just out of curiosity, have you, or even maybe some of the restaurants that you've worked with, have there been like tastings or like meetups just from the community aspect? If you've tried that, how has that worked out?
6: Yes. So actually, yeah, that was one of the, that's one of the things I actually credit my growth with is that as Instagram um, and sharing food on Instagram was starting to grow in popularity, there was a very tight knit um, network and community of of food content creators that we would always gather um and you know if somebody was thinking about going to a new place or there was something that everyone was talking about that was on your radar oftentimes we would go together um, and not just sharing food you know sharing tips and tricks everything that i know about or maybe the little i know about you know photography and content creation i can attribute 90% of it to you know somebody in this food community who was just gracious enough to share trade secrets with me or send me the Amazon link to that light box that they're using or you know this is the best backup battery or make sure you've got two or three of these because this has a short life. So yeah the community aspect through these meetups is um, is, is a reason for my growth and it's something that's definitely still done to today.
1: Great, next question. Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington writes in, when creating your content, what balance do you think about between entertainment and education? Ah, uh,
6: Great question. Great question. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because it is a consideration and there are times where it, it's simply led by the image. I mean, there's some things that you know, again, I, I think I mentioned earlier, we'll just speak for themselves. There's a, a pizza, well, actually it's a, a restaurant cafe in Italian place in Toronto called Mamanas. And they do these special make-to-order pizza slices that are literally, I would say, half of my body. And I remember when I first saw them, I was thinking, oh, you know, this is just a gimmick to get people talking or to get people in. This This restaurant actually does really great, great food and just figure it out, you know, a really smart marketing tool, but can back it up with, um, you know, with some food that is really going to satisfy you. So um, there's things like that, you know, it's, it, that's just fun. That's, I mean, you know, you may get some people kind of being skeptical of it, but like, I think again, you're just, it's almost a version of like reading the room. You know, if I'm at a restaurant and, you know, maybe it's, it, it, it's, it's owned by a, a BIPOC owner whose food isn't very prevalent or talked about in the city. Um, you know, a friend of mine who's opened a Malaysian place. There's not a lot of Malaysian food in um, Toronto. So when I'm covering that, it's it's that's not about me. You know what I mean? That's going to be about um, the story, the food, the ingredients, the how can they try more? You know why why isn't there more Malaysian food in Toronto? So I really try to take a beat on um, not just like what I'm showing, but you know. What 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 is most appropriate to be to be discussed or presented, depending on the food, depending on, on the person.
1: Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in: Do you think the growth of Uber Eats and other food delivery services can be beneficial to established restaurants if they build their strategy right?
6: I I do, um, and uh, I think it's because a lot of folks. Um, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a weird kind of thing. Like, there's some people I know, like, <laughs> excuse me, sorry. My assumption is that, you know, most people are like me, they want to go out to restaurants, um, and, and have that, that lived out their experience. There's some folks that, um, you know, they may not want to, to go out, or, you know, that may not be their thing. There's a level of like, it's a, it's such a it's such a tricky thing, and I've I've only been like made aware of this throughout a lot of conversation. But there's some people that feel like sometimes they want to try a certain restaurant, but they feel like they don't belong there, or they don't they don't fit, or they may not be welcome, or maybe they don't know how to order um, certain things. I, I saw a story about someone that the first time they ever had wine at a restaurant, the waiter at a really nice restaurant, the waiter brought the bottle out and you know someone at the table will just do a quick tasting and acknowledge that it's okay and then you pour for the rest of the table and they grab the bottle and drink it right and we're completely i mean this might sound ridiculous but you know there's a lot of different social cues or social situations that don't always allow for like comfort or awareness so i think that like a lot of times people's first um kind of like foray into or experience with the restaurant might be more comfortable at home i was on a podcast um that was that was led by someone that has vision issues, and they said a lot of restaurants are just simply too dark for them to to navigate comfortably in, right? So um, oftentimes they find themselves using delivery options. So you know there could be a whole host of reasons why someone may not make it out somewhere, um, and I think if you can tap into that, you know you can bring people in, and I mean you know we're also just coming off of uh, a pandemic where we saw the importance of being able to, to deliver to people. So again, sorry, another long answer, but um, yes, I definitely think that if your strategy is built correctly around that method, it can be very beneficial.
0: Oh, great,
1: we're we're taking it, taking it all in. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, what has been the response to your Instagram channel, uh, instagram.com slash eatfamous, and where else can we find you online? Is this your first Zoom meeting?
6: Uh, okay, so um I feel like there's been definitely a pretty uh positive response. You know, not everybody's going to to love what you do. There's some people that um follow me and I have no reason why, or I say no idea why, because they, you know, they may comment and be critical of everything, but I feel like there's definitely been a great overall response to it. Um as mentioned a little earlier on the show, I also do have um TikTok, it's Eat Famous official because someone took Eat Famous when uh, when I when I checked. Uh, those are those are definitely the, the main places that you can find me. And no, uh, not my not my first Zoom, but definitely one of the funnest and most interactive. I love this format.
1: Awesome. next question, Douglas Carmichael writes in: How can live content be beneficial to the restaurant industry?
6: Oh, that, that's great. I think. Um, you know what? Live content has the opportunity to really show like um the personality and heart and soul of a restaurant. A lot of times, you know, if you're you're going in, um, you might just be picking something up and going, or it might be just that uh, you know, your your singular experience with with your server at your table, whereas a live experience just um and I hope that's what they mean. Like I I'm assuming they mean like me capturing something live in in the moment at a restaurant. Um you know, you can see a whole lot of a lot of things. I think also too, when the camera's turned on, um, you know, a restaurant is gonna really try to show you why you wanna come, what's fun, how, why is the food so great. And it you know, also can give you a window into, you know, little parts that you might see, like a lot of times if it's possible, I sneak into the kitchen, I'm talking to, to chefs and, and cooks and showing other um, parts of the process that a lot of times you're not privy to if you don't have that window in.
1: Next question. Paul Walhooth from Austin, Texas. Texas is famous for chicken fried chicken. Where is the best place to get it? And how do you make it, including white gravy? And is this just a Texas phenomenon? Wow.
6: So chicken fried chicken, I'm I'm definitely familiar familiar with. And I've had white gravy. I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have a recommendation, but I don't. And I definitely don't think I've seen it anywhere other than Texas. I know I've not seen it in Toronto.
1: Next question. Paul Walhus again from Austin. Will you go to the Texas Monthly Barbecue Festival in Lockhart, November 4th, 2023? And he includes the link.
0: That sounds like an invitation, Paul. I I am there. (laughs) Like I said,
6: I've been planning uh, a return to Texas. I apparently have a lot of work to do, so... If there's a barbecue festival, then yeah, consider me there.
0: Well, Thank you so much, Ryan, for just sharing all of your insights and, and you delivered because I said that this is the community. There yes. are a number of people who are looking at um, they here's their their full time job, much like you had. And there's something they're working on on the side and and hoping for it to, you know, matriculate into something, something more substantial. And you, you share the the ins and outs. And I just want to give you a moment to Leave any parting words for our community of like technologists, but then there are also creatives and those inside right. of organizations as it relates to building community and growing on social media.
6: Right. Okay. Well, first off, I have to say, and again, this is because I had the opportunity to watch the beginning part of the show, is keep doing what you're doing. Um, you know, communities and forums like this are so essential. Um, I know I picked up a couple of tips when I was just listening in. and um, you know the, the selflessness with which everyone was was giving and the, the space that allowed everyone to, you know speak and share. and' I've seen people kind of lift each other up was was great. So I think that's um, my, my first message is to keep doing what you're doing and congratulations to everybody involved. Um, as for myself, um, yeah, I'm just you know, hoping to kind of contribute to society and and make people happy. that's that's definitely my goal is using tech is using um you know digital platforms to to spread some joy. If I can help some businesses and people grow and find some passion, um, then I think my job is is done.
5: um what's next for you, Ryan? Um, so
6: next, there uh, is a, a book deal on, on the table. So looking at kind of telling the story of what a food culturalist is, because often when I, um, <laughs> when I say what I do, it, it's you know, met with a little bit of a, hey, what, what is that? So hopefully this book will not only you know, explain what that is, but um, you know, show some love to some of my favorite spots and food experiences that I've had in Toronto and abroad. And uh, also working on uh, the development of a, of a web series that's going to see me and uh, a couple other creatives, you know, highlights um, some very, very special things. So, yeah, there's definitely some more to come
0: wonderful well you heard it here first office hours and you can't see our our community chat but just like fun info thank you ryan like just there so thank you so much ryan for for being here ryan hinkson at eat famous go check him out so even when you're traveling that you know some of the places in toronto and, and around the globe and to our producers thank you so much for your questions and your engagement to our panelists for your insightful feedback, and tips, and, of course, to our production team, for without which this would not be possible. Now, if you want to know what is happening for this week, head over to officehours.global. Tomorrow, we've got broadcast graphics with presentation tools, and we have traveled on the Tala Traversal 77,098 miles. That's 124,076 uh, 124, kilometers. That's more than 610 million bananas for scale that's 3.1 times around the earth and thank you so much everyone and we will see you in in after hours bye
1: this channel this interview made me want to start a new hashtag it's all about the cheese bowl <laughs> so many sauteed plantains is it
4: yes that sounds scrumptious oh we start
0: whispering ryan that's what this is at the end of the show
3: chicken fried chicken is chicken fried steak with chicken
5: (laughs) thanks again ryan that was great
4: well done did you get some of that tuscan chicken leftover cheesecake